Hi, welcome to The Halfling. I'm your host, Jaron Pack, and this is episode 12, Elrond the Family Man. Before we get started, I need to apologize yet again for the lack of an episode last week. After starting the year with the flu, my family decided that we'd double up and spend the end of January sick once again. Fortunately, after another week plus under the weather, we're all on the mend as I record this, and I'm hoping to finally get back into a rhythm with this thing. That said, let's do this. Now we spent the last two episodes tracing Elrond's life throughout the first and second ages of Middle-earth history. We saw him become a political hostage at the age of six, before setting himself up as the second in command under the High Elven King Gil-galad in the Elven Kingdom of Lindon as the Second Age started. When Sauron came around in his secret disguise as Anatar, the Lord of Gifts, the pair of leaders saw through the trickery and avoided the fate of their elvish neighbors, who bought into the Dark Lord's guile, hook, line, and sinker. From there, we saw Sauron dupe the elvish leader Celebrimbor into creating the Rings of Power, after which he himself forged the One Ring. The Dark Lord attacked Celebrimbor's land of Erigion, killed its leader, and captured most of the rings, except for the three elven rings. In the meantime, Elrond was sent with an army to help Celebrimbor, but he showed up too late and was only able to withdraw his little force when the elves of Lothlorien and the dwarves of Khazad-dûm provided a timely distraction. Elrond retreated north and set up a new stronghold called Rivendell. There, he attracted many survivors from the fighting and was able to hold off Sauron until Gil-galad and the men of Numenor were able to join forces and destroy the Dark Lord's armies. We wrapped up last time with Sauron retreating to Mordor with most of the Rings of Power, while Elrond was given one of the three elven rings that survived and told to keep watch in Rivendell as Gil-galad's vice-regent of the region. This week, we're going to wrap up Elrond's activity in the Second Age particularly his part in the Last Alliance. However, at that point, we're going to pause the linear narrative part and spend a little time breaking down another area of Elrond's life, his family. It turns out that Elrond is one of the most connected guys in all of Middle-earth. He's related to, like, everybody. Before we get too deep into the family tree stuff, though, we're going to focus in on his nuclear family. And before we do that, we need to finish up the Second Age drama with Sauron. Shall we? Oh, and guess what? It starts with another one of those really long chunks of peace that only immortals can experience. Like, a really long chunk. After his defeat in the initial War Over the Rings, Sauron heads back to Mordor to regroup and plan out his next move. He still stays busy in other areas of the continent. In fact, this is a really dark period of time for many of the men in Middle-earth, but his elvish enemies get a little bit of a breather. In the appendix to The Return of the King, it simply says at this point, quote, Sauron is driven out of Eriador. The Westlands have peace for a long while. End quote. How long is a long while, you ask? Try 1700 years. This really long chunk of time literally doubles Elrond's lifespan up to that point. Now, I think it's safe to assume that Elrond spends most of this time in Rivendell during this long stretch of relative peace. But the truth is, we just don't hear much about him, since the drama kind of shifts elsewhere. But I like to think of him ruling from his stronghold, visiting the local people, 
sharing his wisdom, and generally making sure everyone in his realm is taken care of. After several centuries of this, Sauron is captured by the now quite prideful Numenorians, and he's brought to their island. For those of you who remember from the Isildur series, this is when Sauron corrupts the king of the Numenorians and convinces him to attack the Valar. This leads to the complete destruction of that island nation, which sinks beneath the waves. Isildur and his brother and father escape and found the nations of Gondor and Arnor, but eventually Sauron shows up again. He attacks Isildur and his brother in Gondor, and Isildur comes north, looking for aid from his father Elendil and the High King Gilgalad in Lindon. I know again, it's a lot of names, but we don't have time to go through all of that here. If you're interested in going through all of that in detail again, you can revisit the four-part series on Isildur. Anyway, it isn't until this point, at the tail end of the Second Age, that Elrond jumps back into the action. When Isildur arrives up in the north, the last alliance of elves and men is formed. But this isn't like a local gathering that groups up and heads off in search of battle. It's a multi-nation, multi-ethnic coalition that takes time to come together. One whole year later, the text of the appendix on the return of the king simply states that, quote, Gilgalad and Elendil march east to Imladris, end quote. So, even when they get going, they go like an inch on the map and pause again. Once they're in Imladris, which, remember, is the elvish name for Rivendell, they settle in and use the House of Elrond as a base for three more years as they gather their armies. Then, once they've finally got the whole gang together, they officially start the long march south and east to Mordor proper. Oh, yeah, and Elrond comes along too, just to make that clear. In fact, he's resumed his role as the chief lieutenant of Gilgalad. And that isn't a geographic, I'll hang back and watch the fort while you're gone kind of a job, he's right by his side. At the Council of Elrond and the Fellowship of the Ring, Elrond explains his role in the proceedings by stating that, quote, I was the herald of Gilgalad and marched with his host. I was at the Battle of Dagorlad before the Black Gate of Mordor, where we had the mastery. End quote. He goes on to state that he was personally present when Sauron is defeated on the slopes of Mount Doom. In fact, he's one of three eyewitnesses to the deed that actually survived the whole ordeal. Along with Elrond, there's another elven lord named Círdan, who runs the Grey Havens away in the west where Frodo and Bilbo sail away at the end of The Return of the King. In fact, Círdan is a really cool character all on his own that will probably be an Amazon show. I need to do a series on him, too. Oh, so many characters to cover. Anyway, I digress. Unlike the giant crowd pictured at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring film, according to Tolkien's own writings, Elrond, Círdan, and Isildur are the only witnesses of Sauron's demise. Gilgalad and Elendil are there too, but they're both killed in the action. Elrond and Círdan counsel Isildur to destroy the ring, but he ignores them and heads off to his own doom, as we all know quite well. I get the feeling that Elrond's experience with the whole Last Alliance stuff leaves him with a pretty bad taste in his mouth. I mean, he sees a ton of people die in a Pyrrhic victory, then just as they're about to finally win once and for all, Isildur goes and crumbles under the temptation of the ring. In fact, at the Council of Elrond, the half-elven lord goes so far as to say, quote, Fruitless did I call the victory of the Last Alliance? Not wholly so, yet it did not achieve its end. Sauron was diminished, but not destroyed. His ring was lost, but not unmade. The Dark Tower was broken, but its foundations were not removed, for they were made with the power of the ring, 
and while it remains, they will endure. Many elves, and many mighty men, and many of their friends had perished in the war. End quote. So, yeah. If you ask me, Elrond seems pretty bummed out by the whole ordeal. And you know what? It makes sense. I mean, think about it. He is literally telling this story when they're at a council trying to figure out what to do with the resurgent Dark Lord. It feels like the whole thing is a giant, see guys? I knew this was going to happen. And now, look where we are. Alright, so the last alliance ends without Sauron's complete defeat. We all know this. But the Dark Lord is still undone for a long while. We're talking hundreds of years. The Second Age also ends at this point, and the Third Age kicks off. Elrond returns to Rivendell and slips into historical anonymity for another long while. However, it's during this time that Elrond finally stops talking shop and gets his head out of his work long enough to settle down and start a family. One of the chapters in Unfinished Tales consists of Christopher Tolkien cobbling together all of the various versions of text that his father wrote about Galadriel and Celeborn. I have both referenced and quoted from this section of the book many times before, including in this episode already, in fact. That's because it's chock full of tidbits not just about the eventual Lord and Lady of Lothlorien, but also many of the people and events that surround them. I'll give you an example. At the end of a section called Concerning Galadriel and Celeborn, we find a quick summary of what Galadriel is doing right after the defeat of Sauron and his retreat to Mordor in the middle of the Second Age. During this time, Celeborn has been away fighting Sauron, and he's actually buddied up with Elrond and Rivendell for a good amount of the time. So, missing her other half, Galadriel takes her daughter, Celebrion, who is already well over a millennium old at this point, so don't get the idea of a little girl in your head, and the two she-elves head up to the elven stronghold to reconnect with Papa Celeborn. Once Galadriel finds Celeborn, the two lovebirds and their daughter live in Rivendell for a long while. They're even there when the council takes place where Elrond is made regent of the area and he's given his elven ring. And then we get this line, just kind of tucked in out of nowhere. Quote, And it was then that Elrond first saw Calabrian and loved her, though he said nothing of it. End quote. See how researching something as important as Elrond's marriage requires hunting down the information in a really obscure corner of these writings? Thanks a lot, Tolkien. No, no, really, I love this stuff. Anyways, Galadriel and her family leave after a long while and go on to other places. Then, centuries pass. And then some more centuries. Like, almost 2,000 more years go by. Yep, another big, immortal chunk of time. Talk about unrequited love, though. That whole time Elrond has seen his future wife, doesn't even get to act on it. Now, after a while, Sauron is defeated with all the Last Alliance stuff, and the Earth goes back to relative peace for a while. Then, exactly 100 years into the Third Age, Elrond and Calabrian reconnect, and get hitched. Sorry to sound abrupt, but that's all we get. Just a quick line on a timeline in the appendix of the Return of the King stating that they get married. After this item, we get two more important dates. 39 years after their wedding, Calabrian gives birth to twin boys, whom they name Eladon and Elrohir. And just like that, after just a couple of thousand years, Elrond manages to get the girl and become a family man. Talk about a whirlwind romance. The only thing he's missing at this point is a daughter. And then, 102 years later, hey presto, Arwen pops out, and Elrond is officially the happiest elf on earth. He's a family man with a beautiful wife, twin boys, and a girl, Ray Barone style. 
And yes, that's an Everybody Loves Raymond reference. Now, the one thing that I have to add here is that I've given you the official dates as published in The Return of the King. However, as is so often the case with this stuff, there's one more different date that I want to quickly explain. I've been going off of the officially recorded dates based on the officially sanctioned text that Tolkien wrote down in The Return of the King. But do you remember that Galadriel and Celeborn section of the Unfinished Tales book that I just read from? Yeah, the one that Tolkien never finished and his son had to cobble together after his death? Yeah, a little bit later in that text, it says that Elrond and Celebrion marry in the 109th year of the Third Age. So, for the 0.1% of my listeners that run into that Tolkien nerd that can't even remember their own anniversary, but still is able to say, hey, they didn't get married in that year, you can just tell them that the years you've got come from the official, finalized, and published appendix of The Return of the King, not a posthumously published smattering of unfinished writings. Okay, back on track, Jaren. Can you tell that I have to defend how I present this stuff for a living? Anyway, 250 years into the Third Age, Elrond has officially transformed into a family man. He has a wife, Calabrian, twin sons, Eladon and Elrohir, and a daughter, Arwen. He also has Galadriel and Celeborn as his in-laws. This family unit lives a comparatively peaceful and happy life for the next 2,000 years as the first two-thirds of the Third Age go by. I know, this is a lot of big chunks of time, but this is just how it goes when you've got limited books and massive amounts of time. Anyway, there are some other important things that happened during this 2,000-year period, and we'll cover them later, but while we're on the subject of Elrond's nuclear family, I want to fast-forward to an event that takes place 2,500 years into the Third Age, and I'll warn you, it's not pretty, especially after the lovely stage that we just set. As Galadriel's daughter, Celebrion likes to hang out in Lothlorien from time to time. So, she decides around this time to pay her parents a visit. As she's traveling over the same mountain where the Fellowship is nearly buried in snow, she's captured by orcs. Celebrion is carried off to the dens of the orcs where she's tortured and receives a poisoned wound. Don't worry, she isn't killed. In fact, Eladan and Elrohir hunt down her captors and save their mother. Nice job, guys. But Celebrion is really scared by the whole ordeal. Elrond is able to heal her body, but she becomes disenchanted with her life in Middle-earth. A year later, she caves into the sea calling that the elves of this era feel, and temporarily, she leaves her family behind in order to head over to the seas into the west. Sure, her children and her husband can follow, but she proactively heads out in front of them because she just can't bear life in Middle-earth anymore. With Mom gone, the furious Eladon and Alrohir take out their vengeance by teaming up with the Dúnedain, that is, Aragorn's people, and they hunt down orcs wherever they can find them. This leaves Elrond and Arwen holding down the fort in Rivendell, which is how we get the two of them alone there in The Lord of the Rings. The father and daughter are very close, but the family's happiness is broken at that point. At least it's broken until everyone decides whether or not they're going to go and reunite in the West. More on that later. Alright, there's one more thing we need to cover before we get Elrond's story moving forward again. We went over Elrond's immediate family, but we also need to address his larger family tree beyond his relation to Galadriel and Celeborn, because there are a lot of other important people in those sacred branches. In fact, I've been avoiding this topic ever since the beginning of this series, not because it's boring or anything, but because I didn't want a ton of obscure names and terminology that isn't necessarily explained to bog down the beginning of Elrond's story. I think it just makes more sense to let Elrond's personal story play out, 
and then at some point along the way when it made sense to include his extremely impressive pedigree all at once. So, next time, we'll start by going through a quick breakdown of all of the important people that Elrond can call his relatives. In the meantime, I want to give a big thank you to everyone who has already rated and commented on the pod thus far. And for those of you who haven't, remember, those are some of the best ways to build the audience and keep this thing going. Alright, that's it for now. Until next time, friends. This episode is brought to you by, well, me. And despite the fact that I've memorized whole chunks of Tolkien at this point, it still takes quite a bit of work to pull each of these together. There are also some recurring expenses that come with keeping the show on the air. So, if you're interested in helping, I set up a way to toss a few dollars toward covering costs. Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash thehalfling. That's buymeacoffee.com slash thehalfling. If you make a donation, thank you very much. And either way, I hope you'll stick around for all the fun. All right, that's it for now. Until next time, friends.